Welcome to the Littler Workplace Policy Institute podcast. Insider briefings on the latest legislative and regulatory developments affecting employers. Thank you and good afternoon everyone and welcome to the Workplace Policy Institute's Insider Briefing Call. I'm Eileen Schumann, I'm co-chair of Littler's Workplace Policy Institute. With legislation at the federal level deadlocked, an increasing amount of activity is taking place at the state and even local level. Nowhere is this more evident than in the states of New York and California, both of which recently have seen a flurry of legislative activity on wage and hour issues. As these two states have hugely influential economies and their actions impact not just those employers operating within their borders, but within the whole country. Joining me today to dissect these changes are Littler experts Bruce Millman, a shareholder in our New York office, and Bruce Sarche, a shareholder from our Sacramento office. We also have on the phone Mike Watley, the Director of State and Local Affairs at the National Restaurant Association. Thank you all so much for joining us today. And my first question is going to be for Bruce Sarche from, again, from the West Coast. I guess we're moving west to east. Bruce, California has seen a lot of activity lately, including the first statewide raise of the minimum wage to $15 an hour in the nation and an expansion of the paid sick leave policy. Can you please expand upon what these measures are and what they mean for businesses in the state? I am happy to do so, Elise, and glad to be here. Well, in California, we are going to experience a 50% increase in our minimum wage from $10 today eventually to $15 per hour. And many of my small and medium business clients are frustrated and upset with this and, and not too happy about it. My youngest son, who is a courtesy clerk at a grocery store, thinks it's uh, just a terrific idea. Uh, <laughs> he, he's, so, he's so happy about it, he took down his poster of Steph Curry and put one up of <laughs> of Jerry Brown instead. Um, but we've got the um, increase uh, coming in steps, and there's a large employer, small employer difference. If you have 26 or more employees, the minimum wage goes up by 50 cents next year, and by 2023 will be at $15 per hour. If you have 25 or fewer employees, the minimum wage doesn't go up by 50 cents until 2018 and is at $15 an hour by 2024. A couple of unique and brand new things in this minimum wage law. Number one, once it hits $15 per hour, it's going to be subject to future indexing as calculated by our state director of finance. This is not a CPI, but it's a different sort of market basket of items that are going to be considered in determining what the minimum wage will be for the upcoming year. It's going to make it challenging for businesses to plan ahead after 2023 and 2024, and it is, it is brand new. They, the law provides that the index can cause an increase in the minimum wage, but should we get into deflationary times, there is no provision for a decrease. Second unique feature of our new minimum wage law are what are called off-ramps. 
in the event that there's a severe downturn in the economy or a significant state budget deficit, the governor can postpone some of these minimum wage increases. We question whether or not future governors will have the backbone to stand up uh, in the communities and say, look, uh, we know the minimum wage is scheduled to go by a dollar next year, but I'm not going to. I'm going to exercise my power to keep that from happening. I think that's going to be a significant political challenge for any future governor. Governor Brown has shown himself to be relatively fiscally conservative, and I believe he's the kind of person who would say, I'm going to not implement an increase in the minimum wage, but I just wonder if future occupants of that office will have the same sort of proclivities. Uh, paid sick leave is another thing. In California, last year, we implemented three days of mandatory paid sick leave. Virtually all employers are covered and virtually all employees. The real impact was in uh, private sector businesses sweeping up part-times, temps, and on-call staff and providing them with three days of paid sick leave per year. There was what we call cleanup legislation recently, which really didn't have that much of an impact on the law. Uh, employers are advised to get into compliance if they're not. We actually do have a few clients that still aren't, have not implemented the paid sick leave requirements. And also to make sure that on your paychecks you are reporting sick leave hours. Labor Code Section 226 in California has nine specific elements that every paycheck and pay stub must contain. And it's got a secret sleeper tenth element, paid sick leave. Make sure that's on your pay stubs as well. So that's sort of an update on minimum wage and paid sick leave in California. Um, well, Bruce, what else is on the horizon in California that employers should be on the lookout for? Well, I think there's kind of four things that I would bring to everyone's attention. First is what I call the municipalization of employment law in California. More and more local governments, cities and counties, are getting into the business of regulating the workplace. We see living wage ordinances. We see sick leave, paid sick leave ordinances. Uh, we see no uh, use of subcontractor or limited use of subcontractor ordinances in a variety of cities throughout California. And employers in all jurisdictions need to be aware if there are any local ordinances which impact their ability to do their work. Second, uh, we have a small increase in what's called our paid family leave benefit. This is like unemployment insurance. It's paid for by workers' uh, contributions. And in 2018, the amount of pay that can be received under this program is going to go up from 55% of pay to around 70 or 80% and will be tiered based on an employee's income level. Third, uh, the Department of Fair Employment and Housing recently issued regulations. You can find them at 2CCR11023, uh, requiring employers to have a written prohibited harassment policy. This is new in California. Most employers have prohibited harassment policies already, but this outlines the specific elements that must be included. All that is fine and true, but it's kind of not that interesting. What is interesting in California is recreational marijuana, and mm -hmm. it's on the ballot in November. It's an <laughs> initiative, and it's polling very favorably. It's polling in the 60% positive range. I'm not sure if that's an accurate assessment because the polls tend to include a, a, a question in the question that this will create new um, revenue for the state. But if this passes, California could be, I think, the fifth state to have a recreational marijuana uh, law that says it's legal. Five states plus D.C. now have that. Um, a couple of 
different things, though, in the initiatives should it pass. It does uh, state that it will not affect the ability of employers to enforce policies prohibiting or restriction, restricting actions or conduct otherwise permitted. So you can enforce drug-free workplace policies, but the law also says to the extent feasible, employers shall t- treat qualified medical marijuana patients in a manner reasonably equivalent to patients using other legal medications. This language is not in any of the other five plus D, uh, four plus DC state laws which have legalized recreational marijuana, and that language right there could provide significant challenges for employers in the future should this initiative be passed into law. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for all that uh, information about what's going on in California, now turning to the great state of New York um, and Bruce Millman. Um, Bruce, in 2015, New York convened the Wage Board, and Governor Cuomo recently signed $15 an hour minimum wage bill. How is this different from the legislation passed in California? Uh, well, first, Elise, let me thank you for uh, asking me to uh, participate in the uh, program today. Um, in many ways, New York's uh, uh, new legislation is similar to California's, and in some ways it differs. Um, let me first make a distinction between what the Wage Board did in 2015 and what uh, Governor Cuomo and the state legislature have done uh, just recently. Uh, in 2015, bowing to the pressure of uh, specific groups, and I think that uh, Mike can probably speak to this even better than I can, uh, the State uh, Department of Labor issued uh, a wage order uh, for the uh, a newly defined subgroup of the hospitality industry called the fast food industry, uh, which gradually raises the uh, minimum wage for fast food employees uh, to $15 an hour in um, uh, New York City uh, and to um, also to $15 an hour outside of the city but on a much slower scale. Um, that legis- uh, wage order is actually uh, uh, being appealed in the courts right now um, and um, uh, nonetheless uh, as part of the budget uh, that was just issued for the state, uh, we have increased our minimum wage across the board um, to $15 as well. I think Governor Cuomo was hoping to beat the state of California uh, in uh, raising the rate to $15. Uh, so we've done one better, and that is that our rate is going up to $15 in the city of New York for most employees, most employers, excuse me, those with um, uh, 11 or more employees will see the rate increase to $15 an hour in just three years. By December 31 of 2018, we will have brought our minimum wage from its current $9 an hour up to 15 which is a two-thirds increase in the course of two years. Uh, the impact of that upon em- uh, employers and upon the economy in the state uh, is just too difficult to uh, understand, and I think it's going to be uh, an enormous impact because in just a very short period of time, uh, employees who are now currently paid well above the minimum wage are going to have that minimum wage pass them by. 
and there's been no thought at all to the impact of that large increase on the employees who are making above the minimum wage now, and presumably we would want to keep a differential between uh, employees who are, let's say, at 60% above the minimum wage and who we would want to keep a differential above the new minimum wage. So there's going to be some wage compression, and uh, I, I'm not an economist, but it seems to me that we have the possibility of, of a real inflationary increase here because of the speed with which the minimum wage in New York City for most employees is going to increase and the compression effect. I think we're going to see some real difficulty in certain particular industries, um, such as in for nonprofits uh, and medical services. Um, the governor, as part of the budget, uh, did promise, and there is money in the budget, to uh, fund the direct costs of the minimum wage increase for healthcare institutions, but not for what I call the compression effect or the effect on employees who are above the minimum, and we would want to maintain that differential. Uh, in addition, the budget includes a 13% uh, a uh, fringe rate uh, increase for those healthcare workers at minimum wage, but um, fringe, rate, fringe rates for employees at minimum often run 40 and 40% 40 uh, or more. Uh, so I think some of our industries are going to have uh, a real difficulty with this increase, and others will simply pass along the cost. What's also interesting about this increase is it not only uh, differentiates between large and small employers, but a small employer is one with 10 or fewer employees. It also differentiates between where the work is performed, so that work performed in different areas of the state are now subject to different minimums. Uh, the minimum goes up to uh, $15 an hour by December 31 of 2018 in the city of New York, but in Nassau, Suffolk, and Westchester, which are the closest suburban counties, uh, it does not go up to $15 for another three years after that, which is December 31 of 2021. And in the remainder of the state, um, the uh, rate uh, goes up to 1250 uh, by in 2020, uh, and then is indexed in a manner that's very similar to what Bruce Sarche described uh, for the state of California. Um, we also have an off-ramp in this bill. Uh, each of the three areas of the state is supposed to be analyzed separately to see how the minimum wage is affecting the economy in uh, each of those three areas. Uh, and the uh, budget department has the ability to make a recommendation uh, that the um, increases be suspended uh, because of a, a negative economic impact. However, that recommendation is not going to the governor. It goes to the commissioner of labor. So we have, I think, even less likelihood that in the event of uh, some economic difficulty, uh, that the wage increase will be suspended, as, uh, uh, although it, statutorily it could be. Um, the only other difference between New York and California, it seems to me, in terms of the minimum wage, is that um, we have uh, this, the, as I said, this 
state differential between different areas of the state. And I've already seen clients asking about whether they should perhaps relocate or uh, open a new facility four miles east so that they're in Nassau County rather than in Queens County, where they would have significantly fewer costs because they would not have New York City's limitations on sick leave. They would not have, they would have a lower minimum wage. They would not have a um, uh, limitations on uh, the ban the box limitations that have recently been passed in New York City and various other requirements. Uh, so I could see us developing a sort of within-state competition for different areas of the state for new development. And, and Bruce, um, thank you for that explanation of the New York minimum wage law. And other than um, the minimum wage law, is there any other uh, legislation in the works in New York that employers should be aware of? Well, there are several things, but I think the most important uh, is the new New York State Equal Pay Act, while we're talking about issues of, of compensation. Um, New York has its own Equal Pay Act, similar to uh, that of the federal government, which requires that women and men receive equal pay for equal work unless the difference is based on seniority or a merit system or a system that measures earnings by quantity or quality of production. Uh, and there used to be a catch-all uh, category that would justify a difference that was any factor other than sex. That provision of any factor other than sex, which uh, provided employers fairly wide latitude in defending a wage difference, has now been changed to be a bona fide factor other than sex, such as education, training, and experience. And a bona fide factor is defined by the legislation as something that, uh, first of all, cannot be based upon or derived from sex-based differentials, but also one that must be job-related and consistent with business necessity. Uh, and business necessity is defined in the statute as a factor that bears a manifest relationship to the employment in question, that therefore fulfills the business purpose it's supposed to have. So we now have a much higher threshold for justifying a wage difference in uh, uh, wages between men and women. Um, and the bona fide factor will not apply if the employee demonstrates that it has a disparate impact and that there are alternatives that would serve the same business purpose. What's particularly important about this law is that there is now a 300% liquidated damages provision for violating it. So we now have not only a much higher uh, uh, standard for ensuring that men and women are paid the, se uh, the same for the same job, but we have a penalty which is frighteningly large. So it behooves every employer to be looking at and examining their current wage structures uh, and the employees who are in various jobs and determining, if they haven't previously, what factors may be justifying uh, differentials between men and women, if there are any, and whether those can be defended under the new standard. Uh, because the penalties uh, that we're facing in view of this new law are quite high. Uh, well, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, thank you for that, uh, that rather sobering explanation of um, of the new law, I think not just with respect to minimum wage, um, but 
with the equal pay legislation, it seems like there's really a lot for employers in New York um, you know, to be on the lookout for and to be concerned with. Absolutely. And finally, um, let me turn to Mike Watley from the National Restaurant Association to get his, to get his thoughts. Um, Mike, how does the legislative activity in these states fit in with what you see as nationwide minimum wage movements and activism? Well, first off, thanks, Elise, for having me on this call. Uh, my name is Mike Watley with the National Restaurant Association. I oversee all of our work in the states and then also at the local level. What we're seeing in California and also New York really is the culmination thus far of the what started as the fast food forward movement but has since morphed into the Fight for 15 movement being led by the, the SEIU. It, this all started back in 2012 with a couple hundred uh, activists being in the streets of New York and Chicago and protesting. And several years later, and after tens of millions of dollars from the SEIU for funding this movement, it has fundamentally changed the minimum wage conversation in the United States. Uh, you know, previously when the president, when President Obama came into office, the concept was a nine-dollar minimum wage was considered a big increase, and then it jumped to ten ten. And then with Fight for Fifteen, and then what happened first in Seattle, and now. San Francisco, and more recently, California and New York, 15 really has become the starting point for a lot of these conversations about minimum wage. We, we frequently say that several years ago, most bills that were introduced in either the state legislature or a city council started at $10.10 an hour, and then there were negotiations down to, let's say, $9 or so. But, but now the conversation really starts at 15 and we saw this a couple of weeks ago in Oregon, in addition, the conversation starts at 15, and you might negotiate down a little bit, but if you're starting your negotiations at $15 an hour versus $10 an hour, your end result or alleged compromise is going to be much higher at $15 an hour. So there really has been quite a shift all across the country in terms of the minimum wage conversation. In terms of where we're going to see action next, uh, there, there are a variety of places that will at least attempt to follow in California and New York's footsteps. Uh, you know, previously we'd seen $15 first in SeaTac, Washington, then Seattle, and then San Francisco, but there had yet to be a state that had passed $15 an hour. Well, that has all changed now. We're in a, a new era even now with this increase. So places that are going to look at $15 an hour, the District of Columbia where I'm located, uh, there's a ballot initiative looking at $15 an hour. Mayor Bowser also introduced a $15 an hour provision yesterday. Uh, there's been a ballot initiative introduced in Cleveland, Ohio that would increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour. There's also been a ballot initiative introduced statewide in Arizona looking at $15 an hour. So you're seeing more and more activity with 15 being that magic number. And then also in terms of other ballot initiatives, Washington State is looking at a $13.50 minimum wage ballot initiative in the fall. Colorado is looking at a $12 an hour one. And Maine is also looking at a $12 an hour minimum wage initiative. And all of those, I would say at this point, while the activists are, are still out collecting signatures in the case of Washington and Colorado, uh, it's very likely that all of those will appear on the ballot in November. 
There are a couple other states that are there are ballot initiatives floating around that are, I would say, less serious threats. There hasn't been a whole lot of activity on signature collecting, but Missouri, Florida, and Ohio all have ballot initiatives out there where activists could be out there collecting signatures at any point. But a lot of activity at the state level and increasingly at the local level. And with 15 having passed in two major states, we expect that to continue into the fall and then also into the next couple of years. Um, and Mike, can you talk about um, some preemption efforts um, at the state level? That is to try to um, get legislation at the state level that would preempt um, local um, minimum wage and similar legislation at the local level. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and you know what it means and what the prospects are um, for passing similar preemption legislation? Sure. So preemption legislation has been a top priority for us as an association. We believe that minimum wage decisions are better decided at the state level versus the local level, be it a city or a county. We believe it should be at the state level. Uh, we had a big victory last year in Missouri at the state level. Both St. Louis and Kansas City attempted to increase their minimum wages to $15 an hour. However, the state stepped in and passed a preemption, a preemption bill over Governor Nixon's veto that created one statewide minimum wage. Uh, this year, we've seen similar efforts in Alabama. The city of Birmingham, Alabama, tried to increase its minimum wage and the state legislature stepped in and said, no, this is a state level issue. There should not be a patchwork of different minimum wage ordinances across the country. And then also this year in Idaho, the state legislature stepped up and passed a stronger preemption bill in the state house there. Um, both McCall and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, had considered minimum wage ballot initiatives in the past, so it was an important victory in Idaho to shore up that law. Um, you know, looking to the fall, the state of Arizona may have a minimum wage ballot initiative that's actually being pursued by the business community that would slightly increase the state's minimum wage, but would also create preemption over cities from passing minimum wage laws. Arizona obviously is bordered by both New Mexico and California both of which have a plethora of different cities that have passed minimum wages, be it in Arizona with Santa Fe and Las Cruces and Albuquerque or California with a whole host of cities. So it's been a priority for the business community there to get preemption on the books, even if it requires a slight minimum wage increase. And then looking forward into next year, there are a variety of states that may consider preemption legislation, including states like Arkansas, Wyoming, and North Dakota, in addition to a couple of others. So it's a top priority for us at this point. There are over 25 states that have minimum wage preemption, but we believe it's an important issue that the business community should continue to push in as many states as possible. Well, well thank you, Mike. And for those of you who've called in, if you'd like more information, about how you might get engaged in, in these efforts, please um, reach out to myself or Mike Asplund, and, and we can certainly um, get connected um, with you, Mike, and, and again, see, 
seeing how um, the business community might be involved in some of these efforts. And certainly, um, with respect to any questions about what's going on in California, um, please contact Bruce Sarchet and uh, also Bruce Millman with respect to um, the, the new law in New York and also some of the um, you know other changes that, um, that Bruce was talking about. And I want to thank um, all three of you for calling in today um, on this very important topic and really giving um, the callers of flavor for New York, California, and, and elsewhere and how enormous changes um, are on the horizon for perhaps even more employers across the country. So thank you all, um, and thank you callers for taking time out from your afternoon for the WPI Insider Briefing Call, and that concludes our call for today. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.